Okay, it's class 28. We'll begin today's discussion at the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, and then we'll spend the central part of the class looking at Goadriel's point of view and the test that she passes. Back to the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, uh, up to which we got on Friday. Um, I want to look... Well, first of all, you'll notice that uh, seeing Gandalf's fight with the Balrog, this is now, we've seen several f- fights with Balrogs, and so I think we can go ahead and draw some conclusions uh, for a brief how-to manual, that is, how to kill a Balrog if you are confronted by one. Uh, and there seems to be a fairly simple two-step procedure, which if you follow, you should be okay in one sense of it. And that is, uh, step one, uh, fight near a precipice, if at all possible. Uh, Two out of the three times, three times we have seen, we we have learned explicitly of the death of a Balrog. Uh, At least two of those uh, were near precipices, so that seems to be a good move. Uh, But the second and far more important uh, 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 thing is be prepared to die. in fact, you're very unlikely to survive. In fact, we have a 0% survival rate of people who kill Balrogs. Um, the three that I'm talking about, of course, are Ecthelion killing Gothmog in the fight at Gondolin uh, during the fall of Gondolin, where either slew other, we're told. Uh, Gorfindel and the Balrog, of course, and the escape from Gondolin and Gandalf and the Balrog here. Uh, and none of, no one survives fighting a Balrog, though in all three cases the Balrog is killed. Um, now, this is not itself, doesn't seem very coincidental, and not merely a testimony to the fact that Balrogs are very powerful and very likely to kill you if you fight against them. Um, in both, especially in both of the, of the latter two cases, uh, Gorfindel, uh, Gorfindel and Gandalf, that it seems to be an explicit self-sacrifice. In fact... There are many, many connections we can make between the fight between Gorfindel and the Balrog in the mountains above Gondolin and Gandalf and the Balrog at the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. In both cases, you have a small group of people who are trying to escape. Uh, and you have their escape, them being basically ambushed during their escape by a Balrog and one person stepping forward to, to defend a narrow way next to a precipice while allowing, you know, sacrificing himself to allow the others to escape. And not only sacrificing himself to, for, to, to delay it, but actually to destroy the Balrog, um, though he himself is killed uh, by it. So, and, and, and Gandalf's standing on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and blocking the on the you shall not pass. Um, again, very explicitly, he is sacrificing himself. Um, and they see it. I mean, Aragorn and Boromir, both of them, want to charge back and help because they don't want him to sacrifice himself. Um, and, and they see that that's what he's doing. He's just throwing himself in the path of the Balrog. Um, so that, you know, we've looked at some overall trends about, you know, how evil people tend to act and how good people tend to act. And certainly, acts of self-sacrifice of that kind, um, there's quite a trend of that sort of behavior among the heroes of Tolkien's stories. Um, and it seems, therefore, again, that it makes sense that this is part of uh, you know, this should be sort of the central piece in the Fighting Balrog's handbook. Um, if you want to overcome some of the greatest of the evil creatures in Middle-earth, um, one of the acts of, sort of, of mo- greatest and most powerful goodness seems to be required, and self-sacrifice is 
way up there. Um, I want to I look at Gandalf's speech um, because it's, it's very interesting, not just uh, for sheer coolness, and it's hard to beat it for that. But it also needs a little bit of explanation. Um, its meaning is not perfectly obvious at all points. You cannot pass, he said, uh, page 322. The orc stood still, and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Odun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. Now, what do we see here? Notice his emphasis. When he says, the dark fire will not avail you, flame of Odun. This is a statement of fact. What does that mean? Udun is a, it connects him with Morgoth and, and, and Angband and Utumno. It was a, a place um, in the first age. Um, what does he mean when he says the dark, the dark fire will not avail you? Um, I'm not sure, but it could mean, um, you know, the darkness that you were so much a part of will not give you any power over me. Yeah. And the fire, especially. Balrogs are spirits of flame. That's how we're introduced to them from the beginning, right? They're spirits of flame. And Gandalf says, um, look, FYI, fire's, your fire is not going to work against me. It's not going to be able to harm me. And you'll notice what happens. The fire in it seemed to die. Its fire goes out when Gandalf says this. Why? Well, look what he says about himself. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. The dark fire will not avail you. He's got fire too, Gandalf does. Wielder of the flame of Anor? What does that mean? Anyone have any idea what that means? Jordan, what does that mean? I remember Minas Tirith was originally Minas Anor, which I believe was Tower of the Setting Sun. Yeah, Tower of the Sun. Anor is the sun, Itho is the moon. Yeah. Wielder of the flame? What flame does Gandalf wield? Doesn't he have one of the elven rings? Yes. Yes, the ring of fire is the one that he has, as it turns out. Yes. Um, he does seem to be alluding explicitly to the elven ring that he has. And he's a servant of the secret fire. Which means what? Yeah. Remember that secret fire? This is what Melkor was looking for in the void? But he found it not because it was with Iluvatar? And Iluvatar set the fire to burn at the heart of Arda, of Ea, when he made it? Yeah. Yeah. Your, your fire is not going to work against me. Gandalf is here literally fighting fire with fire. He's saying, look, you are a spirit of flame, but I, I, I can't be overcome with flame. And this is not just a, like, I have the elemental power of fire, and therefore I'm invulnerable to, to heat damage. That's not what he's saying here. <laughs> There's something more, more potent to this, especially the first one, but also the second one. What does the Balrog have, as Gandalf points out? What do you make of go back to the shadow? What does that mean? In its context, not just its context here, but in its larger context going back through the Silmarillion. 
go back to the shadow? What did Frodo say to the Lord of the Ringwraiths at the Ford of Bruinen? Go back to Mordor and trouble me no more. No, it didn't work because he's just Frodo, right? He doesn't have the power of Bombadil. When Gandalf says, go back to the shadow, it has a little more authority. But it is, it's very similar. Very similar. It is also very similar to something which Gandalf is going to say later. When Gandalf, when Gandalf will confront the Lord of the Ring race, therefore completing our little triangle here, um, he will say to him, fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. And it is, seems quite likely that when he says, go back to the shadow, he means something kind of similar. He's, a, he's the flame of Udun. He is connected with the shadow, capital S. He is a Balrog of Morgoth, as Legolas appropriately identifies him. This is somebody who is a free agent, not connected to Sauron, uh, on Sauron's level, as they were both servants of Morgoth in the first age. So when he says, go back to the shadow, we should be thinking of Morgoth here, Jordan? It reminds me of, hopefully enough, you say it's not Pelobando. Yeah. Lost and forgotten, be darker than the darkness. Will gates stand forever shut till the world is mended? The bill may not be on the bell level, but they'll both some open for you. So Morgoth, go join it. Yeah, exactly. You are shadow and a flame. Fire and shadow are, are, are the, the two things that, that, two ways in which the Balrog uh, expresses power, shows power. And Gandalf says, the flame in you, I'm not afraid of. And the shadow, you can have it. Go back to the shadow. The shadow, in the end, is nothing. Where's Morgoth? In the void. Now, I don't think that this just means go into the void, which does seem to be where Tom Bombadil has sent the Barrow White. But that's clearly the direction that Gandalf is pointing there. Look at the emphasis. What happens here, and we've talked about this before a little bit, um, this is a fight. There's only, what, two blows exchanged? Two, if you count the, the, the blow of the Balrog's whip that grabs Gandalf around the knees. Um, one, if you don't count that, it is the Balrog has this huge flaming sword and, he's, you know, and he slams it down on Gandalf who lifts up. Glamdring flares white and answers a little small, little white shining figure. And the Balrog's sword bursts into pieces. That's it. That's the only actual blow exchanged by the two of them. But that's not the only part of the fight. This, this is the real fight right here, where Gandalf says these things. Just like, and again, Frodo says, go back to Mordor and, and follow me no more, and the, but it doesn't work. He's doing the right thing. He is striking a blow against them, but he doesn't have the power, the authority to back that up. When he says it, it doesn't do anything. When Tom Bombadil says things like that, it does something. When Gandalf says something like that, it does something. The two of them are fighting here. And Gandalf is doing reasonably well. The flame in the Balrog is extinguished. It responds. 
The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings of shadow, as from the previous paragraph, were spread from wall to wall. It, 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 it responds to him in kind. He says, go back to the shadow, and the Balrog wordlessly is saying, oh yeah, you want some of the shadow? No, I'm bringing the shadow to you. Okay? Uh, what does the, the Lord of the Ringwraith say to Frodo when Frodo says, go back to Mordor? Come back to Mordor, we will take you. The Balrog has the same response. I'll bring you to the shadow. I'm going to engulf you in shadow. And there's Gandalf, shining white, this tiny little shining white figure, tiny compared to the enormous shadow of the Balrog uh, that's over it and around it. Um, Magic, especially to invent an awkward category, confrontational magic like this when two clearly magical creatures, what the hobbits would call magical creatures, are contesting with each other, rarely is visible. Um, But this is a major conflict between the two of them. And as I said, Gandalf does well. You can tell he does well because he dies and therefore wins. Um, But uh, anyway trying to sort of understand the terms of this and recognize that that's what's happening here is, I think, one of the most important parts of this. Because although the Bridge of Casa Doom is one of the climactic moments, certainly in this volume, um, really in the whole Lord of the Rings, but it can seem kind of anticlimactic if you don't see these things. Like, okay, so the Balrog comes down, swings his sword once, and then falls over. That wasn't much of a fight. It was, actually, quite... <laughs> Quite a fight, just most of it not visible. Eric? So were you thinking of, like, um, back in Silmarillion, I think it was Finrod and Sauron, where during that battle, and I was in the song, it wasn't really a physical battle, it was more of like a battle of ideas, I guess, or through song. Yes, yes. And that, that is such an important moment, because although their conflict isn't rendered visible, it is rendered audible. I mean, we do get it in verse, and we don't always. Um, but that it does seem that the fight between Sauron and Finrod establishes a kind of paradigm for fighting, for magical combat. Um, sometimes they're actually r- reciting verses, um, and sometimes it looks kind of like that, like the Barrow White versus Tom Bombadil is a little like that. Even... The riddle contest of Gollum and Bilbo is a little bit like that, right? Only a little bit. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very minor league version, but it's kind of like it also. Um, both of them asserting very contrary worldviews in verse. Um, so anyway, so there, there will be some times when we will see an explicit recollection of that kind of, po- of, of, of song or poetry duel. Other times it won't even be audible. Not only invisible, but inaudible. Um, But yeah, it still is the same kind of thing. I mean, here you have Gandalf asserting one thing, one set of values, his own power and his own nature, and you have the Balrog asserting his, and we'll see who wins. Um, And that's that's what it's about. That's that's how how these combats work. I want to spend most of the rest of the class, though, talking about uh, Galadriel and Boromir. as the two of them actually make a very interesting pair at the end of this book. Um, 
I want to start with Galadriel's song. Not the elven one, the English one. Uh, 363. This is after she's had the conversation with Frodo at the mirror of Galadriel. Um, they've talked about her ring. They've talked about the ring. This is, this is after this has already happened. But this is the closest we get to getting a little glimpse into Goadriel's own viewpoint. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. A wind, of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. What do we get from this? What is she saying? I sang of leaves, leaves of gold. And leaves of gold there grew. Tony? Uh huh. Good. I agree that uh, tenses are very important in this poem. Um, and because she is very much dealing with the past and the present and glancing towards the future. Um, I agree that that's very important. Um, good. What are the golden leaves? Chateau? Isn't a reference to Lothlorien? She's talking about this little bubble that's created by the ring which she possesses and exerts power with. Yeah. Yeah. The Mowing trees. Mowing trees are unique. This is a new species. We don't find them anywhere else. Legolas says he's never seen one because he hasn't been to Lothlorien. And Haldir believes that there aren't even any Malorn trees in Valinor. They grow only here. And here's Galadriel saying, I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. She made this place through her song. She, it seems, invented the Malorn tree and made them happen through her power, through her song. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. Now she's, so she's talking about her land here, Lothlorien. And her land, with the emphasis on the pronoun there. This land is hers in an unusual way. Beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea. And by the strand of Ilmarin, there grew a golden tree. Now, as Tony would point out, we're still in the past tense here. She's remembering. What's she remembering? Of what golden tree is she speaking here? It's okay if you don't remember its name. It's the other one. Laurelin. Yeah. The golden tree. One of the, 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 there's the golden tree and the silver tree of the trees in Valinor. Laurelin the golden. In other words, now, so what information has she given us about Lothlorien? Put these two things together. Yes. She has made this land, this little elven bubble of Lothlorien, in memory of Valinor. She she has made these trees of gold in recollection of Laurelin, as a tribute to Laurelin. Now, where have we seen this kind of behavior before? Who else did a thing like this? Made a little elven bubble that was a tribute to Valinor even had a golden tree in it, and a silver tree, too. Well, it was, um, oh gosh, I forget names, but it was, um, Melian and, and... 
Melian does recall things, and Lorien, of course, the name of this place is a tribute to uh, Lorien and Valinor, which is where Melian was from. And remember, Goadriel hung out with Melian and Thingol for a long time, so she was like, you know, the the... She was like Melian's pupil and is now like set up on her own. And she and she and Celeborn are like, you know, a little scaled down version of Melian and Thingol. Um, but I'm thinking of a, of a different one. There's another another place where we see another, um, and certainly with the, the the kind of the bubbleness of Doriath is is also you know she's um, the girdle that Melian sets around Doriath and protects it from everybody. Now that's not true of Lothlorien. It's not that. Evil creatures can't get in in the way that Melian was able to literally fence them out. But, um, but certainly, um, its bubble-like quality is kind of like Doria. But there was another one that I was thinking of. Another elven realm which was built explicitly, like modeled after Tyrion upon Tuna, specifically. You remember, Cowan? No? Gondolin. Gondolin. Turgon builds... It's, it's like a scale model. He builds Gondolin. It's like to look just like uh, upon a little hill. And he, he crafts with his own hands out of metal, out of literal silver and gold, the two trees, a, a, a replica of the two trees in memory of Valinor, to preserve the memory of Valinor here on Middle-earth. And Goadriel suggests that this is also what has motivated her to make the Malorn trees. She, why did she sing of leaves of gold? In memory of Laurelin. That's good. She's preserving memory. Remember, that's what preservation, that's what the three rings do, right? That's, that's, that's the elven desire. Beneath the stars of Ever Eve and Eldamar it shone, the golden tree that is, in Eldamar beside the walls of elven Tyrion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years, while here beyond the sundering seas now fall the elven tears. O Lorien, the winter comes, the barren, leafless day. The leaves are falling in the stream. The river flows away. Tony would point out we're in the present tense now. Right? Now, we're looking at what's coming in the future. Winter and the barren, leafless day. The leaves are falling. The river is flowing away. Presumably making us think of time flowing. Which it does almost imperceptibly, when you're in Lorien, of course. O Lorien, too long I have dwelt upon this hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. Eleanor, you'll remember, are the little golden flowers that they see in the hill of Karen Amroth before they get to Karaskalathon. In a fading crown, too long I have dwelt upon this hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. What do you make of that image? What is Galadriel saying here about herself? Art? Well, I, I remember in Silmarillion when she came to Middle Earth, she kind of wanted a little bit of dominion. Yes, around. yes. And she said that her, her, her crown is fading now. It is her, her ability to rule over this area is, is diminishing. Or at least her attitude towards it. That she perceives that the, the golden crown that she has made for herself here is a fading crown. It's made of... The leaves, the golden leaves that she sang up are falling, flowing away in the river. And her crown, self-made crown, is fading. 
It's very important to remember. That's why I emphasized it at the time and said it would be relevant in a couple months. Now's the time, right? Galadriel, when Feanor gives his speech, his let's go to Middle Earth and rule stuff speech, Galadriel, you'll remember, is into it. She's one of the most into it of all of Feanor's audience. She wants, she feels a desire to rule realms under her own command. And she's studying under Melian. And we see her modeling herself after Melian in several ways. We see her give Lembus as Melian did to Beleg in the story of Turin Turambar. Uh, just as one little parallel between the two of them. Um, but now her crown is characterized by her as a fading crown. Duncan, what were we going to say? I was going to say, she's feeling remorseful. She's finally understanding that no kingdom that she can make on this side of the water is going to be as beautiful as life could be. Yeah. On this hither shore, the river's flowing away. You can't actually stop time, no matter how hard you try. And they're trying pretty hard. You go into Lothlorn, you can't even tell the time is passing. Sam, remember Sam's like, I remember three nights for sure, and there might have been a couple more. How many was it? It was, like, it was a month. It was a full month that they were there, and he can only remember three days passing. Right? Time, as he says, doesn't seem to count in there. It does count, but the perception of it doesn't seem to register. But this is futile. The river is flowing away. The leaves are falling in the stream. The crown is fading. And she recognizes that the winter's coming. They can't stop the winter coming. They can't stop the fading. Um, and she's recognizing that. And that's, in context, a big deal. But if of ships I now should sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? Um, this is in connection. This, I, I wanted to start with looking at this song because it will help us to understand some of the things um, that she says in her conversation with Frodo. Um, page 356 is where Frodo offers her the ring. About halfway down the page. Um, he says, I'll give it to you if you ask for it. Wise the Lady Gladriel may be, she said, yet here she has met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I have pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands. And behold, it was brought within my grasp. The evil that was devised long ago works on in many ways, whether Sauron himself stands or falls. Would not that have been a noble deed to set to the credit of his ring if I had taken it by force or fear from my guest? And now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the dark lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. Dreadful as the storm and the lightning. Stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me in despair. Now, uh, although it's like kind of interesting what they do in the movie at this point when she like completely freaks out, <laughs> I don't like it that much because it's really hard to focus on what she's saying when that's happening. Um, and what she's saying is really important um, and quite evocative, I think. Notice what she's admitting here. 
Remember how Gandalf and Elrond have talked about the ring, right? We've seen, call it three examples of the wise and their attitude towards the ring. Um, Of course, there are more of the wise than just Elrond and Gandalf at the council. But anyway, let's take them as representatives. We've seen Gandalf's, we've seen Elrond being like, we have to do something with this ring. Never does Elrond seem to even harbor the idea of, hey, let's keep it. Wouldn't it be awesome to use it? Gandalf doesn't want to, but he still has that moment where he says to Frodo, don't tempt me. If I had it, I might be tempted to use it out of a desire to do good. And then I might fall into evil. Don't give it to me. We also have Saruman, who has completely fallen off the table in his desire for power and his desire to use the ring to establish good ends, no doubt. Um, and here we have Galadriel, who says, yeah, actually, I really want the ring. In fact, I've wanted it for a really long time. She's spent a lot of time thinking, if the great ring came to me, what would I do with it? She has plans. She knows what would happen, because she could make it happen. I would become a queen. Yeah, I'd overthrow Sauron. That wouldn't be hard. What would be hard is remaining good when she did that. And she gives this long description of what she would be like. And the images that she gives are natural, beautiful, powerful. All shall love me in despair uh, is an amazing line. She lifted up her hand, and from the ring that she wore, there issued a great light that illumined her alone and left all else dark. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement, and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. The danger, remember that little discussion that Legolas and Gimli have when they leave, and Gimli's really sad, uh, because he's like totally worshipping Goadriel at this point, right? Um, And he says, little did I think of the danger that lay ahead of me. The dark is what he was afraid of, but he says that light has turned out to be even more dangerous. Um, This is a principle that we see again. There is peril in beauty. There is peril in light. It can be overwhelming. And here, here she is, terrible and worshipful. And that's awful. To love, to revere a beautiful powerful creature and a good creature is a good thing but but if you cross the line both the beautiful thing crossing the line and you and your attitude towards it love and despair could easily go together Brittany? and a lot of other peoples and creatures like love and never go there yes exactly you made it in even more surprising you made it out yes yes exactly it's dangerous it is dangerous um, a lot of people who go in, not, there aren't that many who do, but of them, many of them don't come out. Not because they died painful and horrible deaths, presumably. Um, you know, maybe some. But anyway, most of them not, right? Mostly it's because they don't want to leave. It's dangerous. Um, then she let her hand fall and the light faded. And suddenly she laughed again. And lo, she was shrunken. A slender elf woman clad in simple white whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I pass the test, she said. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Now, uh, in his later writings, after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, 
Tolkien spent a lot of time thinking about Goadriel's story, uh, Goadriel and Celeborn's story in particular, and he was contemplating some pretty massive revisions of the Goadriel story from what is printed in the Silmarillion. Um, he never did them, but he was thinking about them. And one thing that he says explicitly, which was not said in the Silmarillion, you'll remember at the end of the First Age, after the War of Wrath, the Noldor are pardoned and are allowed to come back to Valinor. Some, however, choose to stay because of their love for Middle-earth. They're reluctant to leave it yet, though they still have the past to go to the havens and take the ships uh, into the west after that. So this is why we still have Elrond and Gilgalad and uh, Gildor and the rest of them, right? Um, the high elves who remain but are still sailing away. Um, in his later writings, though, Tolkien said, Galadriel alone of all of the Noldor was forbidden to return. All of the rest of the Noldor could go back except her because her own heart was still not yet right. She wasn't ready for the pardon yet. Those desires that resonated with Feanor were still working with her. She still wanted dominion on her own. She wasn't ready for the pardon yet. Uh, Now she has passed the test. Now she will be permitted back. What needed to happen was this, where she had to make a conscious choice to turn away from power, to turn away from dominion, to turn her back on this self-aggrandizing, dominion-focused life that she chose way back in the first age and that she never totally relinquished. So when she says, I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel, the emphasis that that Tolkien gives on this after the fact, is not just, I'm going to choose to take a ship, but as of now, I can take a ship. I couldn't have before. Um, And that's why in her song, she says, what ship will bear me ever back across so wide a sea? Um, Well, now there is a ship that will bear her um, because she's passed the test and this has actually changed. Um, So in Galadriel we get a really good example of a test being passed. Back to Gondolin, the test that she passes is in some ways very like the test that Turgon fails. Love not too well the work of your own hands, and forget not that the hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh over the sea, or in her case, goeth over the seas, right? Um, She also, in her song, we see her talking about the work of her own hands. Turgon's work, the work of Turgon's hands was also in memory of Valinor, just like Goadriel's. But is she going to let it go? And yes, she will. She will let it go. Um, one other brief side note from the same, uh, the same past, the, the passages that I'm referring to where Tolkien, where uh, where you can read this, the Tolkien's later thoughts on Goadriel are in the volume called Unfinished Tales. Um, also in Unfinished Tales, he tells a little backstory which illuminates nicely the significance of Gimli's request for his gift uh, from Galadriel. Remember, he asks for a strand of her hair, uh, and all of the elves around them are very shocked and surprised. Um, the reason for this, it is explained, Tolkien explains later, that um, back in Valinor, before the Noldor leave, Feanor loved Galadriel's hair. Goadriel's hair is silver gold. It's like both silver and gold at the same time. And Feanor really 
had a thing for Galadriel's hair, and he asked her, could, could, I, could I have some of your hair? Because um, I would like to preserve it. Um, and she said, no, you creeper. Uh, <laughs> and didn't give it to him. Um, and it is suggested that it was actually the, 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 the sheen of Galadriel's hair which inspired the idea for the Silmarils in Feanor in the first place. Um, and, of course, what we see here in the Fellowship of the Ring, Gimli says, hey, can I have one of your hairs? And everyone's like, oh! And she does for Gimli what she wouldn't do for Feanor. She gives him three of her hairs, which, what does he say he's going to do with them? Treasure them? And he's going to put them in imperishable crystal? Yeah, exactly. Very Silmaril-like, but presumably in a good way. Uh, and not going to... Yeah. In remembrance of fellowship. In other words, it's going to, it's going to bring together instead of dividing as the Silmarils did, right? Um, but, but yeah, so uh, that's kind of the backstory and why the, the hair thing was a big deal. Um, in six minutes, we can start Boromir. With Boromir, of course, we get another test, which doesn't go so well. Um, we have seen some of the foundations, some of Boromir's issues, from Boromir's perspective. We've seen in the council his defensiveness about Gondor. Um, you, you notice again, uh, Aragorn pushing Boromir's buttons about this, right? Like when they're talking, when they're debating about going into Lothlorien, and Boromir's like, "No way, man! Lothlorien is bad." And Aragorn pulls out the big guns. Lore wanes in, Gond- in Gondor, Boromir. If those who were once wise now speak evil of the Golden Wood, ooh, ooh, it burns. <laughs> Boromir is very focused on again not only his personal pride but the but but his sort of national pride. Um, he also has, as we've seen, some general submission problems. Um, I mean, we saw some of the tension with Aragorn. Uh, at the beginning, you know, sort of the, 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 the sparks that fly on a couple of occasions during the, during the council in both directions. Um, uh, his remarks, even to Gandalf, uh, right, you know, where, where he openly questions Gandalf when, again, when Gandalf admits that he doesn't know the word to open the door to Moria and, and Boromir says, why did you lead us here then if you don't know how to enter? Um, I thought you'd said you'd been through the mines. And Gandalf gets kind of ticked, right? Do you doubt my tale, or have you no wits left? Um, and, he, and, of course, the things that he says under his breath, you know, uh, his sardonic lead on, he says to Gandalf. And, uh, and when they get into Moria, and he's like, you know, the dark places of the world, and there are we being led against my will. Who shall lead us in this deadly dark? And Gandalf's like, um, I will. But... It's a challenge. It's a challenge to, to, to his authority. And when he says, uh, prior to entering Lothlorien, by strange paths has this company been led, and so far to ill fortune. Um, that, he's, he has not at any point seemed to handle very well being under the authority of others, as he has been under Gandalf's authority and later under Aragorn's authority after Gandalf's fall. Um, and you can see it still lingering on 390, in, in, in the middle of his speech to Frodo, I don't know if you caught 
this little barbed reference. Um, on 390, it's uh, about the, it's the second longish paragraph. Why are you so unfriendly, said Boromir? I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. Tracker? Talk about you. I mean, remember that like, ranger. Remember is an insulting name given to them, given to the to to, to them by the men of breed. Tracker. Um, yeah. So it's still it's still clearly rankling him a little bit. Um, in Boromir's fall, we see sort of the real power of the ring at work. And we've talked from the beginning. Obviously, the ring is not just like, hey, the magic ring that turns you invisible anymore. Um, and but primarily, we've seen it do two things. One. We have seen it both in what we've heard of Gollum and what, we've, and what we heard from Bilbo and what we've seen a little bit even in Frodo to begin with. Um, it creating possessiveness in its owner or uh, potential owner. Um, that desire to, to, to lay absolute claim to it. That's one thing that we've seen. As, as I said, we, we begin to see this growing even in Frodo. Remember the passage that I pointed out about when he... Uh, when he gets the ring back from Tom Bombadil, it was his ring, all right. I mean, we even see there um, his own possession of it, possessiveness of it beginning to grow, and we've also seen it on several occasions trying to reveal itself. Uh, that is, trying to get back to Sauron when when the ring rates are near. But here with Boromir, we begin to see the real corruptive influence of the ring. Um, Okay, there are like 40 seconds left. I really want to go through Boromir's speech, speeches here to Frodo in some detail because when you go through it carefully, you can see the process of rationalization by which he comes through. You can really see the progress of the ring gaining control increasingly over him as, as it goes on. It's a really interesting study to go through these pages. Um, sufficiently interesting that I'm not even going to attempt to do it in less than a minute. Um, Any final thoughts about the observations made about Boromir at the beginning here before I let you go? And we'll start with Boromir next time. Other Boromir thoughts? Yeah. You see at the Council of Elrond how he like wants to use the, uh, the ring, but he, he never, I don't think he ever accepts any of the advice that he's given by all these people, even though he goes specifically to Elrond for wisdom. He says his powers and rule are not in arms and that sort of thing, and he just, he, he never, ever accepts what's been said over and over again, so you can see that really his own stubbornness is getting uh, away. Yeah, and his own pride, that, you know, his, rationaliz- his rationalization will say, hey, well, that doesn't apply to me, obviously, not to true-hearted men. He's elves and wizard lords, they might come to not me. Yeah, and that's again that's that's clearly his own his own pride. Remember he took the journey on himself because he felt he was qualified. And he his assessment of his qualifications uh have not hasn't <laughs> changed much it seems since then. Um Let me jump through to one last quick question. Does Frodo do the right thing? And how can we tell? At the, end of the, at the end of book two, does Frodo do the right thing by leaving them all? By attempting to leave them all, 
failing to leave quite all of them. <laughs> I know, it's so adorable, isn't it? John? Uh, I think he does because just, just in the same way that Gandalf shows the true power of good and self-sacrifice, that's what Frodo is doing. And he, I mean, as you see in the future, that the only way that they can make any progress is by being split apart and doing sort of attacking the, the battle from different fronts. Yeah, it will certainly turn out well, that all of them end up in the places that they end up. Um, That's certainly true. And I agree that it is primarily a self-sacrificial motive that prompts Frodo. Aaron? Aragorn admits that. Yeah, all of them are like, yeah, we really can't do all that much to help. And again, this seems a little counterintuitive. I mean, like, what would be the downside of having Aragorn along with you? Surely it couldn't hurt. Just like, you know, having Gorfindel along couldn't have hurt, but hey, no, let's do Merry and Pippin instead. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it does seem to be... Um, they all recognize that's how this works. This task is appointed for Frodo, and if he doesn't achieve it, nobody will, as Elrond said. Um, so that was good. But had he gone off by himself, it would not have been the right choice. Going off alone with Sam, yes, that's the right choice. Because, and remember, this was the issue way back in the Shire, right? The elves tell him, don't go alone. And he's like, I want to go alone. I want to leave all my friends and save their lives. And they're like, we're going to come with you. And we have this massive conspiracy to come with you. And, you know, is it their, their sacrifice of themselves or his sacrifice of himself that's going to win? So we saw these two things working together. And this seems to be another reconciliation of those two things. Yes, he is going to leave the rest of them. And he is going to go off and he's going to take it only upon himself. But not completely alone. With Sam. So you have, to some extent, both the best of both sides. They are both the fellowship of the one who is most devoted to him. And that kind of personal devotion and love for each other we've seen be a very important and very powerful thing. But also then going through on his self-sacrifice. And I'm keeping you wait again. I'll see you on Friday. And we shall begin the two towers. And go back to Boromir which is relevant to the beginning of the two towers anyway, so that's fine. All right, next time we'll start with Boromir, paying special attention to the nature of the breaking of the Fellowship and Boromir's final actions. We'll then set off through the two towers, discussing the first three chapters of Book 3. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.